Well, it is such a gift and an honor to be able to preach in my last chapel as a student at Truett Seminary in a room full of people whom I've grown to love so dearly over the past four years, people I'm just now noticing who are here right now even. Thank you for believing in me, for equipping me, and for affirming my call to pastoral ministry. I probably would not have the courage to follow this call if it weren't for the community I found in this place. And I thank my God for each of you. Would you pray with me? And now, gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in this place be found pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there are four children at my church whose names I've changed to Tasha, Tabitha, Taylor, and Tamika. And each and every Sunday, they run through the parking lot into the church as fast as they possibly can. And when they find you, it's as if they can't reach you fast enough to give you a giant bear hug. Tasha, Tabitha, Taylor, and Tamika are so loving and so well-loved. Now, the kids all live with their mother, whom I will call Raquel. And Raquel certainly has her hands full with these kids, but she really loves them, and she wants to be the best mom that she can be to them. However, because of various life circumstances and decisions, Raquel often struggles to make ends meet, and sometimes will sacrifice her money for wants rather than bills that need to be paid. Well, one Wednesday night, I was getting ready to take the kids home from church when they told me it was their mother's birthday. Tabitha said they wanted to do something really special for her. So we grabbed construction paper, markers, and stickers, and they each began making these beautiful birthday cards to give to their mom. We even made a quick stop at HEB on the way home and purchased a small cake that we could share with her. And the kids squealed with excitement as we drove to their house, eager to surprise their mom with this birthday celebration. But to all of our dismay, when we finally arrived at their house, it was dark and empty. We knocked on the door, and the kids called out for their mom, but no one answered. I became a little worried about what I was going to do with four kids at 8.30 on a Wednesday night. Not to mention the fact I had not even started my homework for my 8 a.m. class. I asked if they had any idea where their mom could be, and they thought she had probably gone to play bingo. So the only thing I knew to do was to call the kid's grandmother and to drive them back to the other side of town to her apartment. Well, this time that car ride was completely silent. I walked the kids to the door and gave them hugs goodnight while Grandma stood silently in the doorway. She didn't apologize that I'd driven all over town. Honestly, I don't think she was very happy that I'd brought them there at all. I smiled and handed her the cake, but all she said to me was, well, you didn't get me a birthday cake on my birthday, and she closed the door in my face. It was just one of those moments in ministry when I thought to myself, why do I even bother? 
I mean, I love these kids so much, but I've tried repeatedly to reach out to their mom and grandmother with little to no success. Sometimes I've got to wonder if it's really worth trying so hard. Have you ever had a moment like that in ministry? A moment when you thought, why do I even bother doing what I'm doing? Am I going to make any sort of difference at all? Perhaps these moments come for us in all shapes and sizes. For instance, we visit people in jail, but we don't know that their destructive behavior patterns will ever change. Or we go to the hospital or the nursing home. The doctors say there's really no chance of someone getting better. Or we try to teach children a Bible lesson on the night after they've been in STARS testing all day, and they are literally bouncing off the walls. So we put hours of preparation into this lesson, and they do not hear a single word we say that night. Did that happen to anyone else last week besides me? Oh, good. Or we work with families who are trapped by an endless cycle of generational poverty. And regardless of what we do or don't do, the statistics don't look good for them to ever break free. Especially in the tragic events of the past few weeks, many of us have found ourselves ministering in what seem to be such hopeless situations. I mean, we live in a world where bombs go off at races, fertilizer plants explode, buildings collapse, and earthquakes shake the world at its very core. In the midst of it all, our human efforts to help sometimes can seem so insignificant. And I can't help but wonder if I'm going to make any sort of difference at all. But I've also got to wonder if Joseph of Arimathea asked that same question as he took Jesus' body down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Amazingly enough, Joseph went out of his way to do this. In fact, he first went to Pilate to ask permission to bury Jesus' body. Because the Romans didn't normally allow executed persons to be taken by their supporters. But you see, Joseph wasn't just any supporter. He was a good and righteous man who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. You see, there were people like Joseph who didn't want Jesus to die. There were people who didn't yell, crucify him. But obviously they didn't make much difference, did they? I mean, Joseph was on the council, and even he couldn't save Jesus. Perhaps he felt like this was the only thing he could do to help. But even so, I've just got to wonder if he ever thought to himself, what's the point? Jesus is dead. Just hours earlier, he breathed his last breath. It was finished. So why bother? You know, I really would assume that Joseph felt that way if it weren't for this one small phrase that Luke includes in the text. In fact, if we're not reading carefully, we might completely miss it. You see, as Luke describes Joseph of Arimathea, he points out that this man was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. Now, this phrase, waiting for the kingdom of God, is often used to describe faithful Jews, 
Simeon and Anna are both described this way earlier in Luke. So this phrase distinguishes Joseph as a good Jew and a respectable person. However, I must admit that these words are shocking to me when I place myself in the story. Standing in Joseph's shoes, I'm trying to figure out why in the world he would be waiting expectantly for anything to happen. I mean, does he have any reason to hope for something good to come of this situation? The man who preached about the coming of this kingdom is dead. He's been killed on a cross. And you know, Joseph's actions don't necessarily suggest that he's waiting for something big and exciting to happen. It's not like he's planning a parade for Jesus' resurrection. He's not pacing at the entryway of the tomb just waiting for Jesus to come out. Joseph's actions are not those that we would normally characterize as waiting expectantly. In fact, when we think about it, Joseph is just doing the mundane, dirty work he knew needed to be done. Luke pays careful attention to Joseph's actions. He came from Arimathea. He went to Pilate. He asked for the body. He took the body. He wrapped the body. He laid the body. And likewise, these women who come with Joseph are also characterized by their actions. They came from Galilee, they followed Joseph, they saw the tomb, they returned home, they prepared spices. And what especially sticks out to me is that these are all simple, ordinary actions. Some of them require getting a little dirty, going out of one's way, being uncomfortable. Most of these actions would never be recognized or praised by others as being significant in any way. In fact, there were probably far more important things that Joseph and these women could have been doing. Yet they came, they asked, they followed, they wrapped, they returned, they prepared. These are small and insignificant actions, yet they are done with great care and tremendous love for Jesus. In his book, The Irresistible Revolution, Shane Claiborne writes about the time he spent at the home for the destitute and dying with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And he writes, I helped folks eat, massaged muscles, gave baths, and basically tried to spoil people who really deserved it. The goal was not to keep people alive. We had very few supplies for doing that. But to allow people to die with dignity, with someone loving them, singing, laughing, so that they were not alone. Sometimes folks with medical training would come by and be overwhelmed with frustration because we had so few medical supplies. But we would explain that our mission was not to prolong life, but to help people to die well. While the temptation to do great things is always before us, in Calcutta, I learned the discipline of doing small things with great deliberation. As Mother Teresa used to say, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. We can do no great things, only small things with great love. You see, Joseph and these women didn't do anything remarkable. 
They did small things with great love for Jesus. They did small ministry in such a great kingdom. And if you and I don't recognize these actions as characteristic of waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, then perhaps we've missed the point of what this kingdom is all about. A few weekends ago, I woke up on a Saturday morning and was planning on spending the day working on a sermon for church. I had just opened my laptop when my cell phone rang. It was Raquel. To be honest, when I saw her name, I questioned whether I should answer the phone. And when I finally answered, Raquel began sobbing. Her bank account was overdrawn. Her gas tank was empty. She and the kids had no food, and if they didn't get money to pay rent, they were going to be evicted. This wasn't the first phone call I've had like this from Raquel, and it probably won't be the last. But what's so interesting is that the day she called was actually the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The day when there is no reason to hope. The day when there is no guarantee that things will get any better. The time when Joseph and these women did the only things they knew how to do to help in a seemingly hopeless situation. So in this situation, it also seemed pretty hopeless. I was challenged to do the only things I knew to do to help. I went to see Raquel. We talked. We cried. We got gas. We went to HEB. We bought toothpaste, eggs, milk, and bread, while other families loaded their grocery carts with plastic eggs, marshmallow peeps, and large chocolate Easter bunnies. Now, please don't hear me saying any of this to exalt myself, because I didn't do anything special. In fact, the whole time we were at HEB, I kept glancing down at my watch and thinking to myself, I really don't have time to be doing this. I really probably need to be at home working on that sermon. Friends, I will be the first to admit that none of us, not even ministers, are immune from missing the point of what ministry in the kingdom is all about. In fact, I'm afraid if we are not careful, our inflated sense of self-importance can completely blind us from seeing what ministry in the kingdom even looks like. But as I think back on this situation, I'm reminded of what I've heard Dr. Glower say time and time again, that there are no unimportant places in the kingdom of God because there are no unimportant people in the kingdom of God. And so I'm confronted with the truth that every time Raquel calls, it's absolutely worth it. Every single time, because she's absolutely worth it. Every moment spent with Raquel in the toothpaste aisle at HEB is just as important and just as significant as anything else I could possibly do in ministry. And perhaps when we begin to do ministry in this way, when we, like Joseph and the women, do even the smallest tasks of ministry with the greatest love for Jesus, perhaps then we will finally get a glimpse of what this kingdom really looks like. Isn't that what we see in the text? I mean, in one way, we see a hopeless situation. 
Joseph and these women are preparing Jesus' body in a tomb. But in another way, we see a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God breaking into the world at a time when it was never expected and through people who certainly didn't see it coming. You see, through these seemingly insignificant actions, Fred Craddock notes that Jesus is honored, symbolically speaking, by the entire country. Women from Galilee, Joseph from Judea, people from north and south, both male and female, are joining together to remind us that despite everything that has happened, Jesus has not been totally abandoned. You see, Luke makes a place in this story for hope, even in a seemingly hopeless situation. He gives the reader reason to believe that this story has not yet ended. Friends, we too know that the story has not yet ended. Even when there seems to be absolutely no hope, we are reminded that this kingdom Jesus came to bring about has not been totally abandoned. And so, like Joseph and the women at the tomb, we are called to do our part. So we visit someone in jail, even if it takes all day. We help pay someone's rent. We stand in line in the rain to give blood the day after a tragedy. We teach our youth and children with patience and love, even when they, we don't think they're hearing what we're saying. We collect blankets toiletries, clothes, and stuffed animals for families who have lost everything. We offer an encouraging word. We visit a nursing home, and we actually stay a while. We pray. We buy birthday cakes and toothpaste at HEB. And maybe one day we'll finally get it. Until then, may we be obedient and even the smallest tasks of ministry. May we live with extravagant love for Jesus. And may we wait with hopeful expectation for God's kingdom to fully come. Amen.